So I want to start with a quick survey, a show of hands. How many of you still have cassette tapes around your house? <laughs> How many of you live in a house that has cassette tapes but no longer a functioning cassette player? <laughs> I thought there would be a few. I am fortunate to have one fully functioning cassette player. The catch is that it's in my car. <laughs> so if I want to listen to the tape of my dad interviewing me when I was seven, or my truly painful middle school orchestra concerts, or any of my college mixtapes, I, I have to sit in the garage or go for a drive. There's been a lot of innovation in audio technology since those cassette tapes were made. As you might imagine, any car with a cassette player is not very new. My little car recently celebrated its 18th birthday. If it were a human being, it would be a legal adult and free to go on its own. <laughs> but 18 is fairly old in car years, and so its existence is more like assisted living. We take it on short trips around town, and we bring it in for regular checkups. <laughs> I once mentioned to our mechanic that we were thinking of replacing my car with something newer. Why would you do that, she said. It's a perfectly good car with lots of miles left. Her point, while not without self-interest, <laughs> was actually countercultural. The loudest voices in our capitalist country, or at least the best-funded voices, tell us to always have the newest thing and that the newest is always the best. It's almost radical to keep an old car if you can afford a new one. My car does get me where I need to go, and it can even play music stored on my phone by using a special adapter inserted into that cassette player. <laughs> my car reminds me of the Swedish concept of lagom, which means just the right amount. Have you heard of this? This concept of moderation pervades Sweden and other egalitarian nations. Just enough for me leaves enough for others. And for someone who drives about 20 miles a week, my car suffices. Lagom. But we live in a world of innovations and temptations. A few weeks ago, I flew south to attend a minister's conference, and when I landed, I headed to the rental car counter. I'd reserved a compact car. Cheap, fuel-efficient, practical, plenty of room for one person. Lagom. However, the rental car company gave me a free upgrade to a 2018 Chevy Impala. <laughs> In the past, I've actually rejected an upgrade because I didn't want more vehicle than I needed. But I accepted this one because I ran into some people I knew on the plane and they needed a ride to their hotel. I looked over the freshly washed hulk of steel and tried to imagine whether any vehicle could be less me. I could have brought my car from home and put it in the trunk. But it was a done deal, and it was only going to be for a short time. Plus, I had some curiosity. Who might I become in a large black car? As I piloted this land yacht through the night, I was amazed. A big, heavy, quiet new car on roads that had never been heaved by frost. It felt like sailing across a glassy lake compared to what I was used to. And it was surprising how rapidly I adapted. How quickly I saw this ride and roominess as normal. As worthy of the extra carbon emissions. 
How quickly I saw myself as worthy of what had only hours before seemed like excess. Seduced by the new, I found it remarkably easy to abandon, abandon Lagom by the side of the road. Adaptation is our assembly theme this month at FUS, and adaptation has a number of sides. It's a great thing if you're, if you're an evolving species, or a person who needs to survive in a new circumstance. It's more complicated when we adapt to the comforts of consumer society, or when authoritarianism creeps up on us and we adjust rather than resist. As a subject for reflection, adaptation invites us to look at our relationship with what's old and what's new, to look at our relationship with change, and to look at how we balance tradition and innovation in our lives, in our organizations, and in the world. Before we go on, let me briefly finish the story about my dalliance with the giant car. It was basically a vacation romance. <laughs> Not a perfect match, but enjoyable for as long as it lasted. When I returned to Minnesota, I rediscovered my logom, and I did not run out and buy a black limo. But the experience was enlightening in a couple of ways. One, it reminded me that my daily life worked just fine with the car I already have. For me, a good day is not going to be ruined by a bumpy drive home, any more than a hard day is going to be fixed by gliding home on good shocks. And two, the experience got me doing some research, research that led to a critical examination of my values. I learned in my research that the newest model of the car I have has eight airbags. My car has two. That's the kind of innovation that matters to me and motivates me and may finally inspire me to upgrade my ride. I can adapt to relative luxury or the lack of it, but safety is actually a core value of mine. And in this case, the innovations and are improvements I value rather than just being the next new thing. Values are so important to consider when evaluating the old and the new, when deciding whether or how to adapt. Last year, I spoke with a person who had moved into a brand new house in a housing development called Tradition. <laughs> right. Doesn't that illustrate the conundrum? Right there. It's the simultaneous seduction of the old and the new. Tradition is a completely made-up settlement carved out of wetlands. It has no actual physical tradition, but it upholds other traditions. A very kind person I know who lives there said, it, said fondly that it reminds her of the 1950s. The 50s are often held up as some kind of American heyday, and certainly a number of good things came out of the 50s. Many people in this room were born in the 50s. <laughs> This room itself made its debut in 1951. Lots of people were happy in the 50s. But as with many kinds of nostalgia, this nostalgia is steeped in privilege. I'm a gay man, I don't want to live in the 50s. <laughs> many women in this congregation had to fight very hard during that decade to have the careers and the lives that they wanted. And you won't hear people of color or indigenous people asking to go back to the 50s, to legal segregation, to Indian boarding schools, to any number of nightmares. Marginalized people had to do incredible amounts of adapting, often damaging adapting, to get through those times even more than they do now. As you might imagine, behind its many gates, tradition is super duper white. <clears throat> 
There is, I think, a human tendency, a human desire to want to freeze things in time at a time that is or was just right for you. The people who claim that they want to make America great again don't seem to be thinking much about the United States as a whole. They remember a time when they were somehow happier or more prosperous, and they want that era to return, regardless of what it might mean for other individuals or groups of people. Maybe you move into a house or a neighborhood or you take a job at a new workplace because you love it the way it is, that day, that moment, that season. It fits you as you are. But you or it will change. There may be innovation or deterioration. Something in the relationship will have to bend. Will there be adaptation by you or by the thing that drew you in? A few weeks ago, Reverend Kelly talked about the Edict of Torda, a religious toleration declaration issued in a small corner of Europe in 1568. It was remarkable not for the number of people affected, but for its uniqueness. It allowed people of different religions to coexist. Although those religions were all variations of Christianity, allowing even that level of freedom of conscience was all but unheard of in a world of absolute monarchs. As Kelly shared with us, the spirit of the edict didn't last long. The young Transylvanian king behind it died after a carriage accident. The prince chosen to succeed him allowed the four religions to continue to be practiced, but then came one of the more striking laws in history, a ban on innovation. That meant that the four coexisting faiths were supposed to be frozen as they were. No further questions could be asked. No further doctrines could be examined. This did not go over well with everyone. Francis David was a prominent Transylvanian clergy person at the time. <clears throat> He's credited with saying, we need not think alike to love alike. Francis David asked a lot of questions about theology during his life. So many questions that he ended up going from Catholicism to Lutheranism to Calvinism to Unitarianism. He tried all four of the tolerated religions until he found one that was just right. But even then, he still had questions, and he kept asking them out loud until he was convicted of innovation. He died in a prison cell, locked away for thinking critically and speaking his mind. The leaders who locked him away thought they were doing not only themselves, but the world a favor keeping a heretic from spreading even more views among the populace, banning ideas that, if embraced, might cause their adherents to be banished to hell for all eternity. First Unitarian Society would have been these leaders' worst nightmare. <laughs> but the ability to ban innovation, wouldn't that be a power to have? Your car or your mobile phone would never be out of date because nothing newer would ever come along. Your religion, your congregation, your workplace would always do things in predictable, comfortable ways. No pesky initiatives or upgrades. This is, of course, not very realistic. But my point is that it's important to examine these dueling idolatries I've been talking about. The worship of the old and the worship of the new. Idolatry is often thought of as a strictly religious term, but it has a useful secular meaning excessive devotion to some person or thing. We can be excessively devoted to the way things used to be or excessively devoted to having the newest and shiniest. Either of these tendencies risks taking us away from the present reality 
and away from our individual or shared values. As a creative person, I like to think I have a lot in common with our nation's innovators, or at least more in common than I do with those who look backward. But I see a big values gap there, too. Just because some new thing can be done or manufactured, often in an oppressive country, just because some new way of employing people or half employing them is possible, just because some new algorithm can more fully addict customers to a device or social media, just because something can exist doesn't make it good. Google is the second most valuable brand in the world and for most of its existence, its corporate motto was don't be evil. It took them a long time to figure out what a low bar that was. <laughs> it might be worth transferring that to Washington right now. But <clears throat> so we have to keep an eye and bring a critical, we have to bring a critical eye to the old and to the new, to innovations of all kinds and to tr traditions of all kinds, so that we can choose when to resist and when to adapt. Innovation and progress are not always the same thing. My final story is a small one, but it's one that has taught me about how to adapt when things change, how to stay grounded in love across change, how to adapt to what's new and what's no longer new. I think this story is particularly useful for thinking about our relationships with congregations, as they inevitably change from week to week and year to year with new visitors and new members. But I think the story has relevance for any number of situations. So I have one niece, and she's the only kid on my side of the family. There are no kids on my partner's side of the family. That means this one niece gets a lot of attention. Now her name is Elizabeth. One thing that's interesting to note about Elizabeth is that she was born three days after Steve Jobs announced the creation of the iPhone. My niece was taking decent digital photos when she was two. She is a native to so much of what grown-ups have adapted to. She also loves all kinds of more traditional kid activities like drawing and playing in the snow. She's a good model for embracing a mix of the old and the new. So back when my niece was six, she and her parents came to town to visit. This was my first time in the role of an uncle of a six-year-old. On the previous visit, she had been a five-year-old. <laughs> the time before that, she was three. I don't have kids, but I understand math, so. <coughs> and when she and her parents were here on that trip when she was six, I took us all to the same playground that we had gone to on one of their earlier visits. Once we were there, however, I soon realized that most of the climbing areas in this particular playground were designed for preschoolers, kids younger than Elizabeth now was. My ever-changing niece had outgrown that playground. She would never be a preschooler again. I very much enjoyed her younger days, but I couldn't hold on to those experiences. I could treasure them, but I couldn't hold on to them. That trip to the playground helped me realize that I needed to not only cherish the past, but also celebrate what was new and celebrate the change. Celebrate the things Elizabeth could do as a six-year-old that she couldn't do as she was three or four or even five. Celebrate the things I could teach her in her new identity. Elizabeth is now 11. She still likes swing sets and slides, but has aged out of most playgrounds altogether. She's been texting and FaceTiming with me for years. 
And she's turning out to be much smarter than any of her relatives. <coughs> I've already begun another shift in identity from uncle as teacher to uncle as learner. She recently taught me the right way to play the scale on a piano, something I've never before known how to do. I have a delightfully ambiguous combination of roles. It's an adaptation that I've welcomed because it's rooted in my values and it takes place on a foundation of love. And so it is with any healthy relationship, with one's friends, one's relatives, with organizations, with our country. We don't try to freeze things in time any more than we try to freeze our children in time. We don't try to rush the next thing without thinking about the impact on everyone. We do the personal work of finding our own truth, and we do what is necessary through the ups and downs. And in doing so, by being faithful to our values and the things we care about, we help there to be more ups and fewer downs. We take steps toward building the world we dream about. So let's pop in a mixtape and keep going.